This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's a seismic shock that could have huge ramifications on American politics and, of course, American women. Well, that is the sound of massive protests that followed the leak of a draft U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that made abortion legal in the United States. Yesterday, the court confirmed that the draft is authentic, but said the final decision may be different. Now, the jury is out on whether there will be ramifications here in Canada Zoomers will remember the huge controversies that led up to the 1988 decriminalization in our country. I'd like to hear from you if you remember demonstrated on demonstrating on one side of this issue or the other, if you remember the big trials of Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. I know that a lot of people and political parties here are hoping, you know, that ship has sailed and not to have to deal with that again. Right now, uh, so the numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, And let's go to Dr. Joanna Erdman, Associate Professor of Law and McBain Chair in Health Law and Policy at Dalhousie University, and Dr. David Cohen, Professor of Law at Drexel University's Thomas R. Klein School of Law. Thank you both so much, and uh, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. Okay, let us begin with... Dr. Cohen, uh, this seems like even the fact that it leaked is historic. What do you make of the response so far? I think the response is pretty predictable. Those of people who support abortion rights are outraged. I don't think they're surprised because we saw this coming, but they're still outraged and especially outraged at just how um, the, the, the leaked opinion pulls no punches. It is a full-throated rejection of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. So people who support them are expressing their frustration and outrage. But people who have been trying to overturn Roe v. Wade for half a century now are celebrating, or at least tentatively celebrating, that they think finally the time has come. They've been working on this for decades, and it seems like their goal is in grasp. Uh, It certainly does seem that way. Dr. Erdman, were you surprised that this draft, it doesn't even have any exceptions? It doesn't have exceptions for rape or or incest or even the mother's health? Mm -hmm. Well, and indeed, uh, the opinion and Alito's uh, writing suggests that all of those issues can be returned to the state uh, and state by state, they can make decisions. And let's be frank, on the lives and health of people. I think the public reaction, the massive protests in the U.S. and worldwide says it all. The reaction is not just about coming restrictions on people's access to critical health care. It's really a reaction to the profound disrespect that the U.S. Supreme Court justices show, not just to people who support abortion rights, but those who have and need abortion. The opinion shows how little this court cares about people. Dr. Cohen, uh, is it uh, just, uh, would you see this as, as an assault on women's agency over their own bodies? Is that what it's about? Or what else is behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think the group of justices that have been assembled on the Supreme Court right now, the, there are six conservative justices, five of whom are very conservative, 
And they don't care. They don't care about women's rights. They don't care about racial justice. They don't care about LGBTQ rights. They've made that clear in their writings. The people who appointed them have made that clear. And I think this is, frankly, the first of many decisions that are going to come in the next year or two that we are going to see a a really quick um, return to a time when a lot of these rights weren't recognized. And this group of justices they're on a mission. Um, so this this opinion absolutely shows that they do not care about women's rights. They do not care about women's bodily autonomy. Um, and that's just some of many rights that they don't care about. Well, the president has warned that this could affect a lot of other things. Uh, my understanding of what he said is that uh, the, the lawmakers in the United States should scramble to make a law that that could supersede the court decision, Dr. Erdman, do you see that happening? Oh, well, this we're seeing as a response worldwide, which is really quite striking, is the idea of government passing statutory law to protect constitutional rights. Uh, and that is my understanding of what the proposal is in the United States. But I heard it today in the Canadian context, too. Uh, we have not had a federal law on abortion in this country since 1988. Uh, the feds would have to pass it under the criminal law power. That's where the uh, abortion issue sat before. And they had made that argument, federal government, that we need a criminal law in order to guarantee that basic level of services. But there's something to be said for the fact that in more than 30 years, we have not had a federal law in this country. It has not been considered necessary to protect those basic constitutional rights. Well, uh, the Prime Minister, uh, if you just heard our newscast, we ran a clip of the Prime Minister saying that he's instructed his ministers to look into just such a law. And of course, on the other side of it here, conservatives are saying, oh, my goodness, the Liberals and the NDP will use this. Uh, Dr. Erdman, I mean, uh, on the other hand, the conservative interim leader has instructed her people not to comment. What do you make of that? I believe the no comment tells you that our legal foundation for abortion rights in this country is strong. In the 1988 decision of Morgan Toller, again, the court in that case did not return the abortion issue to the state. It returned it to people. People were the center of that judgment, and the justices spoke of these fundamental rights respecting abortion care. And I think it's not that the decision stands today, it's that the decision has come to really shape the way people feel and think about abortion in the Canadian context. And political um, holding back on that is because the right is really not in question in this country. Again, as mentioned, contrary to the U.S., Morgan Trawler truly did settle the issue in Canada. No law federally, and especially no criminal law, has ever truly been uh, a real threat in this country for more than 30 years. So there's something to hold on to uh, with that. It's not just about that one decision in 1988. It's really about the decades since and the way in which the Morgan Trawler judgment the rights that it protected have become meaningful uh, in the everyday lives of people. That will be your strongest protection of those rights. Uh, Dr. Cohen, how many states I in the U.S. have already enacted very restrictive laws? And, and uh, there are also a number who are saying, hey, we're open for this. The estimate right now is that if Roe is overturned, which obviously is looking very likely as of a couple days ago, that almost half of the states in the country will ban abortion or seriously restrict it in the very near future. And then in the states that remain legal, there are going to be several states, like the state where I'm talking to you from, Pennsylvania, that abortion is legal but heavily restricted. There's going to be about 15 states where abortion remains legal and has very few, if any, restrictions. So what we're going to see in this country is a lot of people, people who have the means to do so, traveling out of state to get abortions. But really, it's only people who have money, who have a flexible job, who have support at home, who have childcare, 
who are going to be able to travel sometimes very long distances to get a procedure in a state where it's legal. Um, and so the people who can't travel are going to either have to get abortion pills online, which may raise some serious legal issues in their home state, or carry their pregnancy to term against their will. Yeah, um, it is uh, very interesting. And I mean, even here in Canada, the access to abortion is extremely patchy, Dr. Erdman. Mm-hmm. There are still legal issues on abortion in Canada. From the perspective of rights, our legal foundation is strong. But as you note, what about access to care? There are still legal restrictions on access in this country. And uh, I'll give the example of drug regulation on abortion pills, which keep them under prescription control. Telehealth abortion care around the world, it continues to expand access. And these models of care show that people can manage their abortion safely if they have information and support rather than clinical supervision. So when we ask about access barriers, we do need to acknowledge that there are regulatory structures that create those barriers. And specifically here, I'm speaking to law that mandates a health professional provide abortion rather than a law that supports people to manage their abortions on their own terms. And I would nod to Trudeau and ask, yeah, if you're looking for a legal regulatory structure of the future, let's look to that. Over-the-counter access to abortion pills, the de-prescription of abortion pills, that would be game-changing. And we can continue to work towards it in Canada, not just for the support of those who live in Canada, but indeed uh, for people in the U.S. to have greater access to abortion pills. Indeed, my policy prescription is put pills into people's hands. And for Canadians, that means looking at our drug and health professional regulation on abortion. Uh, How do we make abortion part of everyday life? I'd like to bring in part of your health care. I'd like to bring in Dr. Nancy Dowd, who is a professor of law at the University of Florida and the David H. Levin Chair in Family Law. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Dowd. Thank you. And I, I apologize for coming into the conversation late. It, it certainly sounds like you've been having an interesting one that is um, including both the um, a, a variety of, of methods and means um, by which... Um, uh, one could terminate a pregnancy, not just a surgical abortion. So what is the situation in Florida? Are there uh, restrictive abortion laws there as well? Well, as you may know, because we have a governor who is um, very high profile in terms of trying to uh, out-Trump Trump, um, uh, conservative abortion laws would are definitely... Uh, in place and in the legislative um, uh, pipeline. But we also have a state constitution that um, has an express right to privacy. Uh, so, and therefore, the right to um, uh, reproductive rights are protected under that state constitutional provision. So, uh, Florida, ironically, would be, um, and I say ironically because it's certainly at the vanguard of conservative legislation um, in uh, with respect to voting, with respect to um, restrictive laws um, in terms of educating uh, kids from K through well, almost up to graduate school. So you would expect a, a hyper-conservative um, uh, response from Florida, except for the fact that our state constitution will provide um, some protection. So the question is how much, but it would not, um, unless there were a challenge under to that state constitutional provision and the reversal of state precedents, um, there would be uh, some protection. The question would be how much. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Dawn in Toronto. Hi, Dawn. Hey, I always seem to call when you have these great topics. So I'm so opposed to this, but there's a bigger picture here. 
that I think Canadians should look at in the U.S. The Supreme Courts in the U.S. are beyond corrupt and beyond nefarious. The judges are not are not on the up and up. I well, I California. I, I, let's uh, let's hold off on on uh, libelous the accusations there. Incest and young children in the U.S. has a higher statistic than we do in Canada about rape. That gives CPS in the U.S. way more autonomy now. And CPS in the U.S. is already on very okay. thin ice for doing illegal and nefarious things, removing children. Okay, uh, uh, Don, I'm, I'm going to let you go. I, Sorry. Uh, let's get to Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. You know, um, being a male, I, I'm a, a, against what's going on in the U.S., but Dr. Erdman said something interesting in that there are still restrictions for women getting abortions here in Canada, right? Yes, depending I mean, on where they live. Uh, I mean, the pills should be more readily available. In terms of legislation, outside of some ultra-conservatives, I won't even mention their names, but uh, I don't think this would ever come to pass in Canada that, that it would ever even... Stephen Harper um, never addressed the subject when he was in power of bringing back, um, you know, um, banning abortion. So I just I just don't think it would be something that would ever come to the fore in Canada. Okay, Ron, thank you for that. And uh, as I said, that Candace Bergen, the interim leader of the Conservatives, who is on record as being anti-abortion herself, said there are no plans to change the policies in the conservative party here. Dr. Cohen and Dr. Dowd, I mean, uh, this is not a surprise to anyone. I mean, uh, do you just see this as the culmination again of uh, what uh, this camp has wanted to do for a very, very long time? Dr. Cohen. Yeah, the, the right wing conservative movement in this country has really laser focused on abortion and the legal part of that has legal has razor focused on uh on Roe v Wade and for a long time it has galvanized people who may not otherwise support the Republican party to support the Republican party and it's an interesting question and a lot of people have been talking about it what happens in our elections this year in 2022 here in the United States we're not electing the president but we're electing all the other people in the uh, federal government um and so what happens to our elections when roe is overturned do the democrats benefit because people will flee the republican party no longer caring about abortion because abortion's off the table or will it not change much? And I think that's one of the big wild cards, because it really has been the central plank of the Republican Party for so long, and now they're going to get what they want, it looks like. So what comes next? Well, that's the big question. It's interesting. Uh, one of our regular commentators here, who is a former deputy, deputy leader of, of uh, the Canadian Conservative Party, but who is pro-choice, said she thinks, number one, that some somebody who is a Democrat leaked it. Uh, I think that would probably be fairly clear. And she thinks that that would actually improve things for the Democrats because the, uh, people will be worried about that. Dr. Dowd, do you, uh, do you would you agree with that analysis? Well, I I I think what's going to be interesting is the extent to which the conversation gets broadened um, because. The way this draft opinion reads, there is far more potentially at risk than um, abortion. Uh, this can lead to other reproductive rights and even more generally to the right of privacy and therefore um, into, I mean, there, there is express questioning of uh, rights for same-sex couples and uh, the right of same-sex marriage. So I think there's a potentially much broader agenda that is at stake here. And the other thing that's interesting politically is the widespread consensus, uh, according to opinion polls, about um, the, des the desirability of um, access to abortion. So uh, I don't th think you're going to see 
um, legislation coming from any Republicans to to for some um, limited abortion rights. But I think that uh, that in other words, this is going to be a legislative battle at the federal and state level. Um, but I also saw this morning that the the most um, extreme pro-life groups feel that the battle is not over, that the next level needs to be a federal statute prohibiting abortion, which would then supersede um, a, a patchwork of states. So, so, but I think, again, it is a much broader conversation um, that um, it is, is potentially implicated by this decision about uh, reproductive rights, about privacy rights, about marriage rights, about family rights. Dr. Erdman, one of the things that I have to say troubled me a bit. The minister, Karina Gould, yesterday said, um, yeah, sure, if American women want to come here to get abortions, if it's prohibited there, uh, yeah, they can. And, and I'm thinking, uh, having nothing to do with abortion, just it, it's already really hard to get in to see a gynecologist, you know, uh, <laughs> and if there are a lot of women in border states or whatever, um, you know, that could impact our wait times. I think this could be a wonderful um, achievement if people would come uh, into Canada to access abortion pills. Uh, and if the consequence of that is that we uh, ease restrictions on access to abortion in this country for everyone, if indeed there's an idea that abortion can be provided safely without, as you note, having to see a gynecologist, which is not the case uh, in Canada, indeed there's been a great expansion of access to abortion in the provision through family physicians, midwives, nurse practitioners. You can access abortion pills directly from your pharmacist upon a prescription so indeed, if the idea of supply of abortion pills being recognized is so critical to the lives of people that it changes some of our policy in Canada for everyone, so people living in Canada and Americans who are coming here in order to access and exercise this basic fundamental human right, I think that's a great outcome. Okay. Uh, it is time to wrap things up. Dr. Cohen, Where? what do you think happens next? Do you think there's any chance that they would back off after seeing the result? Look, I think that none of us know the future for sure. So there's always a possibility. But I think it's very unlikely for a couple of reasons. One, we know the court is very conservative, and this is consistent with that. But two, they've given every indication that this is where they're going, which is why what happened Monday doesn't surprise a lot of us. Um, they've allowed Texas to have a very restrictive abortion law, and they haven't stepped in to stop that. And then at oral argument in this case, they really did indicate this was the path they were going to take. So I don't think we're going to see much change in the ultimate outcome. You know, there might be some changes around the edges, but I don't think we'll see much change. And that's going to put the ball in the court of state legislators and the president and other Democrats in Congress to not just express outrage, but to actually do something and enact legislation nationally and state in states that support abortion rights to further access and protect people who travel. So the really the balls in the court of people who the pro-choice politicians to act. And, and do you think that Biden could get that through? Um, I think there are things that he can do short of passing a law in terms of protecting access and ex even expanding access, particularly around pills and availability of pills and then some other strategies. There are things he can do. To this point, he has said some really – he said some good things about the importance of the right, but he needs to act. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dr. David Cohen, Dr. Nancy Dowd, and Dr. Joanna Erdman. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, how much sleep do you get? There's a new study out with a magic number, the optimal number for middle-aged and older people. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
How much sleep do you get every night? How much sleep should you get? The latest research says that for middle-aged and older people, there is a magic number, and it is seven hours. The study in the journal Nature Aging found that getting either more or less than that number could cause a reduced ability to pay attention, remember and learn new things, solve problems, and make decisions. Seven hours was also linked to better mental health with with people experiencing more symptoms of anxiety and depression and worse overall well-being if they reported or when they reported sleeping for longer or shorter stints. So I would like to hear from you. How long do you sleep most nights? Do you wish you slept more? Do you suffer with insomnia and how does it affect you? It's it's a huge issue. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Richard Horner, Professor of Physiology and Medicine at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Andrew Lim, a sleep neurologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Uh, thanks for joining us and, and welcome. Hi, guys. Hi, thanks. Hi there. It's, it's my pleasure. Let us begin with Dr. Lim. So, what is your reaction to this study? Magic number seven hours. Yeah. So, so you know, I've, I've read the study, and um, I think the main take home from the study is, is that sleep is probably important for uh, cognition, for mental health, and for each individual person. There probably is a person-specific ideal sleep time, right? So, so yeah. But, but I think. The thing to bear in mind is that this is a study of, of many thousands, like many hundreds of thousands of, of individuals. Uh, and, and what they found was on average, uh, when you considered hundreds of thousands of individuals, uh, people seemed to do a little bit better uh, who had closer to seven hours of, of sleep. Uh, it's really, really hard, though, to extrapolate this up to the individual situation. So we know uh, that there are many factors that go into how much sleep you actually need genetic factors, uh, medical factors, uh, social factors, uh, and that for any given individual, uh, the magic number, so to speak, uh, may be different from seven hours. So there are some individuals who may need eight or nine hours uh, and who would perform optimally uh, with those numbers. Uh, there are other individuals who may actually only need uh, six or, or fewer hours uh, and would perform optimally in that setting. So I think it's really, really difficult uh, to take away from the study of hundreds of thousands of individuals uh, a, a single unitary magic number of the amount of sleep any given individual needs. Uh, Dr. Horner, do you agree? Do you think maybe seven is not exactly the magic number? Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Lim put it very nicely. I think the I think the key element for the listeners is there is no magic number. There's a range of numbers, and I think that's really the key. Um, the National Sleep Foundation, which is a large body in the United States uh, comprising a lot of people, analyzed hundreds of, of scientific studies over many years looking at many outcomes, and they didn't come up with a number. They came up with a range, which I think is far more helpful. And so, for example, in adults between 26 and 64, the optimal range, and what I mean by that is for optimal health and in particular, uh, how, how people feel about uh, their cognitive function, whether they feel top of their game, and that range of numbers includes seven hours, but it's seven to nine. And I think people who are in that range are choosing those uh, that amount of sleep through their how they feel, that's the, that's the optimum uh, amount for, for them to feel top of their game, but also it's constrained by people's, you know, uh, having to get up for work and commute, etc. So I think the idea of a magic number is not the message that should be perhaps taken from that study. Is The reality is there is a range, and it's the range that people should be concerned with. And if they are outside of that range, to maybe assess for themselves what it is that they, they may be sleeping shorter or, or longer amounts and maybe put in place strategies to improve that. Uh, I have to say I am very blessed. I am a world-class champion sleeper. Uh, I can always easily fall asleep, and uh, I think that's been in instrumental in 
recovering from serious illness, for instance. Uh, oh. And I always thought that I slept a lot, that it was like eight or nine hours. And just a few weeks ago, I sort of revisited that. And I said, no, I don't sleep for eight or nine hours. I sleep for seven hours every night, naturally. So I was happy to see this. But I'd like to hear from our audience How long do you sleep? Do you have trouble going to sleep? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am talking to two sleep doctors. And Dr. Lim, how many people have trouble sleeping? What percentage? And uh, it seems to get get worse as people get older. Why is that? Yeah, so, so difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep is, of course, a very common uh, problem. And, and you're absolutely right. It does increase with age. So if you take a look at folks over the age of, say, 65, uh, you'll easily find that, that a quarter to a third of folks or more um, will not be uh, able to fall asleep uh, you know, easily when they want to or, or stay asleep to the extent that they would like. So it's a pretty common problem. Uh, that's a huge number, Dr. Horner. I, again, why is that? Well, I think there's a, there's a number of factors why uh, this is the case. Uh, lifestyle factors, pressures of work, life, illness, commuting, taking medications for other reasons can all impact sleep. Um, and there's a lot of things that we do which, you know, our parents have told us when we were kids that, that we should not do to improve our sleep, and yet we do them anyway. I think that there's a long list of of uh, things that we can do to improve our sleep. I think one of the best resources is from the University Health Network, which you can just Google and tips for better sleep. It's excellent. And on that list, I think, is something that a lot of people forget, and it's getting outside and getting natural daylight, because that is a probably one of the single most powerful ways to improve our body clocks, which allow, which times our entry into uh, sleep at night and waking up in the morning. This is difficult as we get older, uh, particularly in northern climates with the change in the daylight hours that we have and the bad weather. But exposure to natural daylight in the morning is really a very strong way of organizing our body clocks to help us sleep. And I think that's one of the things that most people don't know about or appreciate, but it's certainly one of the most powerful. Dr. Lim, what are some of the other things? I know that there is exercise and there's also don't look at screens before you go to sleep. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean, there's definitely things we're going to want to uh, uh, avoid. Um, so getting excess light at night is an important part of, of, of that. So, so avoiding excess light at night. Um, and in, in the modern era, a lot of that is coming from things like, like screens. Um, uh, you know, I, I would definitely you know, reinforce what Dr. Horner said, uh, which is that there's a lot of things that we can do during the day, like getting uh, a, a adequate uh, uh, physical activity, like getting adequate light exposure, uh, uh, that make a huge difference uh, to to syncing up the body clock and helping us to fall asleep uh, better. Uh, I, I think another really important part of, of good, healthy sleep habits is, is regularity, is having a, a bit of a routine, having regular bedtimes, regular wake times, uh, and having a bit of a routine going into bed. Um, uh, this routine might be different for different people. Uh, it might be, you know, reading a book. Uh, it, it might be having a bath. Uh, but having something uh, that you do on a regular basis that sort of sets you up for sleep uh, is really important. Okay, we have got to take a break on the other side of it. We'll be back with more on sleep and this latest sleep study. Uh, And I really would like to hear from the audience. How much do you sleep every night? Do you have trouble sleeping? What are the impacts of it? And do you do the things that we've just heard we are supposed to do to encourage better sleep? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about sleep and the optimal amount of sleep for people who are middle-aged and older. There's a new study out that 
pegs it at seven hours, our expert doctors that I've been speaking to are saying, well, actually, there is a range. Uh, and I would like to hear from you. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Also, do you have trouble sleeping? What do you do? Or uh, does it all go really well for you? like it does for me, frankly. Uh, but it, it's a huge problem for a lot of people. And I want to go back to something that Dr. Lim said at the beginning. And he said that this study, what it proves is that sleep is connected to mental health and that it can cause anxieties or all those things if you don't get it right. Dr. Lim, uh, what do we know about that? Sure. So, so what's clear for sure is that there's a link between sleep and mental health, and it's probably a bit of a two-way street, right? Uh, so we know that uh, things like anxiety uh, can contribute to poor sleep. So if you're up at night worrying about things, then it's hard to fall asleep. Uh, depression, we, we know, can contribute uh, to, to poor sleep as well. If you're thinking negative thoughts, it's hard to fall uh, asleep. Uh, and, and there's also a suggestion that poor sleep can contribute to poor uh, mood and anxiety. And we know this ourselves, right? If you pull an all-nighter uh, and have a poor night of sleep, you're not in a great mood the next day. Uh, so the relationship between the sleep and mental health is probably a, a, a two-way street. Let's take a call from Lorene in Etobicoke. Hi, Lorene. Hi. Glad to get through to you. <laughs> um, what about too much sleep? I can sleep 18 hours around the clock. Um, like sleep apnea? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about that? Uh, Dr. Horner, do you want to take that? Yeah, well, I think, did I hear correctly, 18? Yes. Yeah. So I think um, when one experiences... So that would fall certainly outside of the range that that we were talking about earlier. So there is, you know, the magic number, which I'm not sure is a magic number. There's a magic range, and probably between 26 and over 65 years, we're talking around seven to nine hours. Now, when the, there are guidelines and suggestions, when people are exceeding or having less sleep than that, and certainly way less sleep or way more than that, there, there may be a cause of concern, and one of them is, for example, sleep apnea. If someone's sleeping excessively, there's what's the reason for the sleepiness and the urge to sleep? And sleep apnea is one of those conditions. Um, Dr. Lim mentioned another one, depression, uh, often accompanied by excessive sleep. So the course of action in that circumstance would be to mention this to your family doctor and say, look, you know, I'm sleeping all of these hours. I feel tired. I'm sleeping at times when other people aren't sleeping. It suggests that something's not quite as optimal as it should be. Um, what do you think this could be? And there's a course of action that would that would be, um, you know, a, a roadmap after that. But that 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 would concern me if it if it was me. That I would I would. The main thing is, I suppose, as well, is if it's affecting other things you do. If it affects your daily life and things you might want to do and you just can't because you're sleepy and certainly 18 hours would be a concern in terms of yes. life, for sure. But um, I've had a machine and that does nothing. A sleep apnea machine. Yeah, there, there comes a point when people don't sleep well with them, and and there can be have. You know, be sleepy as, 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 as a consequence of that. But I would re I would reinvestigate that. I'm not sure if Dr. Lim would have any comments because I know he would see patients with this kind of uh, disorder. Yeah, I, I would encourage you to reach out to to your sleep doctor and, and just let him know what's happening uh, and, uh, and and work with him or her uh, to to get it uh, to a solution that works for you. Laureen, good luck. I think that's uh, some good advice that you got. Let's go to Ian in London. Hello, Ian. Hi, Livy. Um, I had heard at one point that uh, seven hours consecutively wasn't really what was required, but rather seven hours or eight hours within a 24-hour period, which could include an afternoon nap, um, a three-hour sleep, and then perhaps a four-hour sleep that was interrupted, etc. So I'm just wondering if your people have anything to comment regarding that. Who wants to take that? So, 
um, so I, I mean, I think there's, there's a limit to, to how much we can break up sleep and still get value uh, from sleep. So we know that there's a sleep cycle uh, and, and that you need to have a certain continuity of sleep in order to get all of the uh, uh, stages of, of sleep uh, uh, you know, in. Uh, I mean, I think if, if you have a situation where you're not able to, for whatever reason, uh, get adequate amounts of sleep at night because of work or, or other obligations, then I think napping makes a lot of sense. Um, but, but I think it also makes a lot of sense to, to have you know, relatively long and continuous periods of sleep if, if your, uh, your situation will allow for that. Okay, uh, just one other comment that I think there can be a difference as well, perhaps, between men and women in that men, as we age, can often have prostate issues, which force us awake, and uh, we can have trouble getting back to sleep after that. Is there any comment regarding that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there are definitely uh, sex differences in a whole host of disorders that can contribute to to poor sleep, uh, prostate issues are one of them. You know, sleep apnea, to give another example, is is, is more common uh, in men than in women, and 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 there are a whole host of other medical uh, conditions um, that that have a different prevalence between men and women. So yeah, there's definitely uh, sex-related differences in in, uh, in conditions that can affect sleep. Ian, thank you for asking those questions. You know, it's, it's really relevant here because we have a whole pile of people that work the early morning shift, including Jane Brown, who is the morning anchor and who fills in for me when I'm gone, and people who get to work. That means they're already here at 4.30 in the morning. And I know they have regular naps. They probably go to bed at around 9 o'clock till whenever and then have a regular naps at a regular time. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Horned, they seem to be okay and to be fine on that schedule. Sure. I think um, it, it's the body tells you, I think, when you need to catch up and, and get what you need. And I think people responding to that is, op, you know, is optimal. I think the, it's an interesting issue having to work, um, altered shift hours. I know that, mo- you know, morning shift will be best suited to those people who are morning people naturally and nighttime shifts in reverse. And napping, I think, is really an interesting and important question here. So napping is, in principle, there's nothing wrong with napping. It's a natural reaction to feel tired, uh, certainly after a, a lunch, and certainly it's part of many cultures. Um, it, it's, it's a good idea to, re- to remember that napping will offer something at the time, but it will take something away from the nighttime sleep. So those people who are perhaps have a tendency to have a difficulty falling asleep at night or waking up in the middle of the night, then thinking about whether napping in the afternoon has increased that tendency is something to consider. And maybe if you're worried about insomnia at night and staying awake for two hours, and it's a concern for some people with their anxiety, etc., then cutting out the afternoon nap is a good thing. Whereas in other people who it doesn't really affect their nighttime sleep, particularly if they have hours that that means they, their nighttime sleep cuts short. So it, it's one of those things that we need to be aware of and strategize to work with rather than against. Hmm. And uh, it's clear to you, I, and this this question, that there are some people who are morning people born that way, some people who are night people, some people in between. Mm-hmm. Dr. Lim, do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, we know that the tendency towards morningness or eveningness uh, is is quite strongly genetically uh, determined. So, uh, so there's there's definitely people uh, who are born morning or born evening people. What about melatonin? It's a natural substance. I know that I take it when uh, after a very long transatlantic flight, but there are some people who take melatonin just to get to sleep, you know, at home. Is is that a good thing to do? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think melatonin can play a role, especially if people have trouble sleeping because of biological clock problems, because of jet lag or shift work, or, or for example, because uh, they're intrinsically uh, uh, night owls, uh, but because of school or work obligations, have to sleep much earlier than their body would otherwise allow them to sleep. So I, mean, I think there is a role uh, for melatonin in, in these sorts of cases. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that there's an important role for melatonin for dealing with insomnia in a more general um, uh, sense. So, I mean, there, there are specific instances where melatonin can be quite, uh, uh, quite useful. 
Yeah, can I just add there, because I think Dr. Lim raised an important point that, I, again, I think it's a good message for people. Melatonin is not a sleeping pill, but it does help our body clocks if we take it maybe two hours before bedtime in the same way that exposure to natural light in the morning helps our body clock and thus helps regularize sleep. And, and that's how it works. It's not a sleeping pill as, as such, but it promotes sleep through help, helping organize our sleep timing. And, right. and Maybe that's a good message. What about? And, and I think one thing to keep in mind is, is that you know, melatonin won't be helpful for everyone. Um, and, and for instance, you know, if you're already a, a bit of a morning lark, if you're, so if you're the sort of person who will tend to want to fall asleep uh, quite early and wake up quite early, uh, taking you know, more melatonin before bed won't necessarily help the problem of, of waking up too early uh, and, and may in fact make that worse. What about sleeping pills? Uh, I mean, especially for older people, they can be dangerous, they can cause more falls. Uh, and there, I know there are some people who have an initial problem, but they end up staying on these pills for a very long time. Right. So, so I mean, a couple of things about about sleeping pills as, as a class. So, so the first is that, you know, th- these were never meant to be used for long periods of time, so so the, the the context in which they were studied were, were really sort of discrete and relatively short periods uh, of time. Uh, second, you're absolutely right, especially as we get older and have other medical problems. Uh, the the you know, downsides of these sleeping pills become more and more uh, important downsides, like cognitive impairment, like falls, um, and that and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I think for the most part, uh, non-pill-based solutions. Uh, are I would say preferred uh, for you know the vast majority of patients uh, with insomnia, especially uh, uh, older uh, patients. Let's take a call from Claire in Mississauga. Hello, Claire. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go Thank ahead. You. You're on the Thank air. Thank you for taking my call. I'd just like to quickly tell you my sleep story um, because it, it uses a couple of the things that the doctors are saying. I'm 85 now, and through most of my life, the vast majority, I had no problem at all sleeping. Fell asleep, slept eight hours, and so on. I had done shift work. I worked for the airlines for a long time. Still no problem. Then, when I was in my 60s, my husband developed prostate problems. So my sleep pattern started naturally to be a little disturbed. But then it, it, uh, it, it still was okay. Then he developed Alzheimer's, and it was even more disturbed. So I was up three or four times a night until he eventually went into a home. Then I developed some form of insomnia. So um, I um, dealt with it as best I could, but then I wasn't feeling very well with it in the morning. And I, I live a very active life and so on. So eventually, my doctor, I was, can fall asleep, and I'll sleep for three or four hours, but then wake up. every. I was waking up every single night. So my doctor wound up um, uh, giving me a sleeping pill, uh, Zopoclone that the doctors will be familiar with. And I now I take uh, half a one of that when I wake up, and it's actually worked beautifully for me. And how long have you been taking that? For now, since I was in my late 70s, and I'm 85 now, and I do loads of exercise. I do um, 15,000 steps a day. I Good play for golf. you. Um, Claire, I'm, I'm going to let you go and let the doctors answer because we don't have too much time left. Thanks for your call. Okay. So uh, that's uh, she's been on that uh, on, on sleeping pills for a while. Seems to work. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, first off, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about uh, about your husband uh, and, and the illnesses that that befell him. Uh, so, so we don't wish that upon you know any, anybody ever. Um, uh, and, and I think this highlights that actually when our, our spouse, our partner is, is unwell, it can have you know, huge impacts on our own health and, and then on our own uh, uh, sleep. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to speak to the specifics of, of, of this particular situation uh, without knowing all of the details and, right. and yeah. so on. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in general, I mean, you, you do encounter people um, who have derived some benefit 
from from medication. So I don't deny that 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 happens, uh, and, and that benefit always needs to be weighed uh, against you know the potential downsides um, and side effects that come with these medications. Uh, and that's a discussion that needs to be had you know between you know herself and and, and her physician. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I'm of course not talking about her specific case is that people, I guess, should review it after a while. Maybe you don't need it, uh, Dr. Horner. Yeah, absolutely. And this, yeah, I'm glad you raised that. That's, that is a key element. And, and as Dr. Lynn mentioned, these, these agents are, if they're prescribed, and that's less common now, um, is usually for short periods, three months. And, um, because of the downsides with them, like cognitive problems, potential for falls and, and confusion in the middle of the night, and um, the difficulty in getting off them after a prolonged period. So this is this so-called rebound insomnia is a, is a serious problem for a lot of people, and I, I know some myself who are just stuck with these pills and they can't get off them because they sleep so poorly without, even worse than they did when they got them in the first place. In 10 seconds, can you tell us what rebound insomnia is? <laughs> It's when, for example, you, you try and get off drugs that promote sleep and your, your insomnia is worse than it ever was before you went on them. And that that's, makes it hard for people to get off some of these drugs. Hmm. We're uh, getting close to the end of our time. Dr. Lim, what would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I'm just getting back to, to, to the study that prompted this whole discussion. Yeah. I, I want to just reiterate the idea that, that really there, there's no single magic number for the amount of sleep we should get. The, the amount of sleep that you need depends a lot uh, from person to person, um, and and to a large extent. I mean, if you're you know falling asleep easily, uh, staying asleep, uh, and, and are, are feeling good during the day, you're able to stay awake and do the things you want to do, and are feeling good about it, uh, then then you're probably getting uh, the amount of sleep that you need. Dr. Horner, last twenty seconds to you. Yeah, absolutely. Sleep is a just a wonderful thing. And if, I think we can all find the ways, and we, we know them in advance, about ways to improve our sleep and just really go for it because it's just so much benefit and reward from prioritizing it, really. Okay, thank you both, Dr. Andrew Lim and Dr. Richard Horner. Appreciate this on a very important topic. Thanks. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.